we all come in with everything that we need, but we don't know, <clears throat> we don't have the skills to use it. We don't have the nuances to use it. So we're ripening into that wisdom of seeing those assets and then also kind of getting out of the narcissism of what do I need in this moment? And it's like, then when we're paying attention in the spontaneous moment, it just becomes natural to respond in that moment. Da, da, da. Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap, a podcast featuring Bhavani Sylvia Maki, an international yoga teacher, musician, and author of the Yogi's Roadmap, the Patanjali Yoga Sutra as a Journey to Self-Realization. I'm Shanae Trudeau, a student of Bhavani and a teacher of yoga. These are conversations from the heart. The Yogi's Roadmap podcast explores yoga as a journey of compressed evolution off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Bhavani believes that engaging in the full science and art of yoga uplifts us, deepens our connection with authentic self and to the source of joy within for personal growth and deep transformation. Bhavani Sylvia Maki has been studying the art and science of yoga for nearly 40 years. In her teaching, she interweaves the insights she has gathered into a holistic exploration of the microcosmic and macrocosmic self. Dedicated to exploring yoga in its complete expression, her teachings are steeped in the traditions of Patanjali's classical eight-limbed yoga, with an emphasis on integrity of alignment and the use of yoga as a powerful tool for healing. This project was conceived out of the desire to have more, deeper, intimate conversations with my teacher, and a request from one of Bhavani's own teachers, Rama Joyti Vernon, who once said to her, let's get you out of the jungle and into the world. Bhavani lives on the island of Kauai, Hawaii, with her husband, Ray, and their son, Nico. Welcome to the Yogi's Roadmap podcast, off the beaten path toward breakthrough experiences. Welcome back to your podcast. <laughs> I'm here without you, Shanae. Can't imagine it any other way. I'm so grateful to be in conversation with you. And I want to just launch right in. So I heard you speak on the Meta Space podcast with Rachel Holmes. And you said, quote, <laughs> generally in the yoga tradition, one lived a very simple life. And now the challenge is how do we live the lives that we live and teach yoga, or I would add practice yoga within the economy and the framework and the psychology that is, exists now. So it's 2022 and living a simple life often seems very complex. Can you speak more about that? <clears throat> yeah, I mean... First of all, everybody has different needs and different desires, but um, perhaps as we, you know, recognize how 
the quality of our interior life and how we feel in the moment is going to determine how we feel in our daily living. Um, you know, so much of yoga is a reprioritization. So, you know, what I can say from personal experience is that, um, you know, as we age, we become less fascinated with all the glitter and all the glitz and all the shiny things. And we realize how much our, our mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being takes priority. And then there's, you know, um, something that I've noticed in my own life is, is that there's a real building up phase, you know, so there's that period and we can equate it to Krishnamacharya speaks about, you know, the Brahmacharya phase and the Vastaprana phase um, that will build up. And we, we all do want to have a sense of economic stability, even in the Purushartas which speaks about, let's see if I can re remember them all, artha, karma, um, dharma, and moksha. That if we have a certain level of financial stability, then we can start to ask the deeper questions. So, you know, there's the building up phase, and then you realize like, okay, actually, my, my life force is what's most precious to me. And, and we might find ourselves getting in the inertia of, of trying to amass enough to create security that <clears throat> we get to a point where it's actually depleting. And there's a shift that happens and we might go, wow, look at everything that I have. So I, I was talking to this one really brilliant student on the um, Yoga Sutra mentor, mentorship, Natalie Rittenauer. She's a, she's a very deep and seasoned practitioner. And she was speaking about, she lives in Mexico, she's a surfer. And she was looking at someone's palapa and it was this beautiful palapa. And she was saying how, you know, she was thinking, oh, I really want a palapa like that. And then she stopped herself mid thought and, and recognized I already have it. So, you know, it's it's an interesting thing, and it's it's always like that. That's so much the balance of how we live in the world, and how we take care of our interior um, field, and that that kind of like tension. You know, I just I've reconciled myself with the fact that tension is part of the traction that keeps us growing and yoga is this reprioritization. Um, as far as taking on yoga as a career, it's a slippery slope because as you know, once you start teaching, you offer so much energy to your students. So there's going to be a waning as far as your own personal practice. Um, you know, for instance, I would be delving into different sutras if I didn't have the sutra mentorship, but it's okay. It's okay because there's so much depth to discover and what I'm covering with the students that I, I really can appreciate how they're pulling me along. 
But, you know, for me, I didn't really ever see myself teaching yoga. And then there was a need for a teacher. And so my teacher asked me to teach and I've shared that story. And honestly, I, um, I had like five different jobs and I, I never turned to yoga as being my sole income. I never even looked at it as an income on the financial level. It was more of an energetic exchange. And miraculously, the other jobs started to fall away and I was able to, you know, make a living teaching yoga. So that was pretty remarkable. But what I tell most people is don't quit your day job. And I think that there's really a lot to be said as far as having the diversity and, you know, instead of becoming unilateral in what we're doing, um, sometimes, you know, it's interesting in this last sutra that I covered in the mentorship, the second to the last one in the Samadhipada, it speaks about, um, you know, yoga is so much a process of self-regulation, okay, initially. And so it's really watching where our energy is in the vritti. And by the way, vritti can mean work in modern India. So like, what's your work? So where's my energy going? Where do I get caught in a, in a spiral? Where is the energy pulling me down? Where am I getting into a rut? And then eventually it says, um, you know, that effort becomes the obstacle and you can see where you're overly self-regulated. And that then what we do is instead of like having these fixed ideas, we come into the spontaneity of the moment. And rather than just trying to be with saints and gods and angels and sages or even yoga students, that we open ourselves up to the world. And, um, you know, in the Buddhist teachings, it even says that we hang out with thieves and cannibals. I was like, okay. <laughs> I always think of Christ, like who did Christ hang out with? The bitches and the hoes, right? The pimps and, and the, the lepers. And the yeah. lepers, you know? So there is something, that's something that I actually really miss living here. When I lived in, in Chicago, there was the aspect of riding public transportation. And when you ride public transportation, you fraternize with all kinds of people that you might not otherwise brush up against. So there's something, you know, really beautiful about the, um, the insecurity of teaching yoga. I mean, how many people can <clears throat> allocate an entire day for one class and make a living out of that. So yoga is so much about the eclecticism and about being part of the culture um, with, with an inner freedom that I think that there's something really beautiful about it. And our priorities begin to shift as far as what we really need. Maybe we see I already have it and there's that sense of um, wanting also that sutra speaks about, you know, then we're just in our natural impulse. It's not about 
It's not about restraint or direction. Um, and the natural impulse is to want to help, to want to be a part of society and community. So we might find ourselves helping or working and facilitating in ways that we hadn't imagined, but there was a need that we can help with. Yeah. So it, it, it is tricky. Um, you know, I was reflecting on this a little bit earlier, and there's that aspect that everything is so um, monetized now. You know, even the, even the sense that we pay for something and then we're paying for a service and then we receive the service and there's a contract and it, is there a satisfaction thing? So I love what Martine Krechtel speaks about. We've lost the art of courtship. And in courtship, it's like, you know, for instance, there's a, a few students who come, they always come with their hands full of flowers to offer to the puja, or there's extra fruit on the trees. There's that sense of reciprocity and we can help with, we can help each other and we can share in the abundance and we can share the load without it having to be like, okay, the price is this, the price is that. Um, it's a tricky thing, you know, how do you, how do you monetize it? So traditionally, it was like basically um, the teacher served the student and the student served the teacher and they lived together. And that certainly cut costs in some ways. But I wonder if there's a way that, you know, maybe we can be more um, <clears throat> generous and forthright and just helping each other and sharing with each other so that not everything becomes like, okay, here's a bill that I have to provide for, so I'm going to build this other person. It, it might create a different kind of a culture or bring that culture of, the, of the, the family and the community back together. That's beautiful. It makes me think of two things. So um, this gentleman, Stephen Jenkinson, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he wrote um, two books recently. One is called Come of Age and the other is called Die Wise. And he talks about um, being gift-minded. Mm. And it's just a beautiful turn of phrase in, in exactly this energetic exchange that you're talking about. And I want to just back up for a moment and you know you're talking about riding public transportation and I'm I'm in Paris right now and there's really something to be said for um you know uh for me to just kind of go about my day without this like needing to um like we talk about simplifying life but I also kind of feel like in the yogic tradition there's this way of like living very purely and trying to like purify ourselves and how that can get a bit um, rigid, <laughs> fundamental, dogmatic, you know, rather than just embracing what we have. And I, I think they go really well together. These, these concepts of being gift minded and not holding ourselves above it all, you know, as yogis, not trying to um, 
trying to live above it because I know in my studies with you, um, I'm always trying to get underneath it. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this next question kind of goes along in the same way, but like as householders and practitioners, both, and um, cause I think it's, it's, it's the rare person who, who lives the lifestyle of, of Milarepa now or Siddhartha, you know, the Buddha and those kinds of things. But we are attempting to live in this ever-changing dynamic world. And, and it, it reflects our, you know, the sentiments of living in the world, but not of the world. And so it's like, how do we how do we weave those elements of, you know, kind of the nitty gritty with our attempt to, to, for the spiritual and words are failing me right now, but. Yeah. You know, perhaps it's back to that sense of the first sutra, Atha Yoga Anushasanam. Like how do we squeeze the nectar out of life. And it's really interesting because, um, you know, it's this path of that evolution and involution. So, so much of it is unloading, as you were talking about, unearthing, unloading, seeing what we're carrying, seeing how so much of what we value is, is, is based on the projections that were put onto us of what made us valuable. So as we begin to tease apart those stories and behind the myth of who we are, there's a truth behind that. So we might, you know, kind of reauthor or redesign that sense of value and what's meaningful to us. Um, so there's a lot of kind of like whittling away and in that process of whittling away, you know, it's like you come back to what you already have. And then our definition of self comes from the inside. And it shouldn't be limited to words. But really, it's our capacity for capacity. And when you think about, you know, as I speak about capacity for capacity, I may have a large container, but if it's encumbered for me to expand my capacity for capacity, there's that, that the art of emptiness of getting rid of stuff. And then there's really, I mean, this is what I so enjoy about the aging process is there's kind of an ease and I, and perhaps it's even the dying process where you're, you're holding on less tightly. You just don't have the prana to do that. There's less of the grasping. And so you become more of a, you, you start to feel how you're in this grand reciprocity. I was um, listening to an old recording of one of the sutra mentorships. I'll do that like sometimes the the one that I held before because little gems appear. And in it, Nico had, um, I shared something that Nico had learned at his nature camp 
And he said to me, you know, when you whistle, you help the trees and the plants to grow. And he was talking about how the exchange of oxygen feeds all the plants. And then of course their reciprocity is giving us the carbon dioxide. And it was so lovely because in that moment, my whole paradigm shifted from my bubble to realizing that I was part of this grander bubble. And I was really touched by the teachings of St. Francis of Assisi and St. Therese of Lisieux, who were really, really simple. And, um, you know, the, the purity was in the simplicity. It's, it's not that pure doesn't mean that there's impurity, but just kind of like pure and simple. And the fact that they're like, when we lean into what's already happening, there is such a, a there is such a thing as divine providence. So then we stop trying to, I mean, I've noticed that with me for sure. It's like, there's, you know, there's periods where there's more Lakshmi or, you know, money or abundance coming in. And then there's periods where it's just kind of in this exchange and cycle and um, to be okay with that, to be okay with it, because there, what do I really need in this moment? When I look, I have more than I need. And, you know, that goes, that goes all the way down to the thickest veil, which is the Abhinivesha, which is the sense of clinging to life and the fear of the fear of death or the fear of not having enough and being malnourished and dot and that being an aspect of withering away. Um, so, you know, there's a time and a place for that, but when we live in that modality, that fear, my teacher Rama would say actually is what keeps the energy from flowing your way. So, you know, it's like that, that becomes a practice in itself of just being like, I already have it. I already have what I need. And the sense of Shraddha, which is the, the trust in the unknown of where the next nourishment is going to come from but if we're willing to invest ourselves and instead of it being like what can I get but that sense of being in the romance with life then then we're we're back in the grand exchange of things yeah yeah so I you know it's like if if we're paying attention we're going to see where we can help and then we're going to open up that doorway where there's more of an exchange will be helped as well. And then we can also learn how to ask for help when we need it. And I, I feel like sometimes that's really hard for us mm. just to ask for help. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. That's, that's really clear. I mean, I, I hear it. It's, there's not just an easy answer. So it's, it's like before we began our uh, interview today, it, it's like, yeah, it's like, this isn't um, the only thing that can be said on these topics. It's like what we have right now 
to go into and it can always be elaborated on. And, you know, for me, I love your teaching that it's like, I don't try and over oversimplify something, oversimplify a teaching. And yet it can be, you know, simple. And like you said, pure and simple. It's just like, if it can't be explained, like in a sutra, then maybe I'm overcomplicating it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and it's that sense like, you know, we're the ones who have this idea of yoga as being rising above or transcending or, and, and certainly part of that process is like of involution is rolling the margins inward so that we can get clear in what really matters to us what are, what the assets are that we've already come in with. And when I pull from IFS, internal family systems, let me see if I can name them. We're naturally creative, compassionate, connected, calm. Oh my goodness. Courageous. Did I say courageous? Curious. There's a couple of more. So we, we naturally have those assets. And when you're in that way, then it's like you're, you're learning to work with the raw ingredients and the raw stuff that's around you. And that's how creation ensues and how creativity is pulled out of us. So, you know, certainly we want to get clear in our own field, but really yoga is about the evolution of culture collectively. So we work on the level of our own, on our, of our own nervous system, our own perspectives, our own ideas, our own belief systems. And then we tap into this cellular intelligence, which is part of all of nature. So then we're realizing, okay, no, I'm part of a larger system. And perhaps the challenge of trying to be a yogi or a yogini or a teacher in the world and isolating that, the challenge is that we become more eclectic. How are we going to integrate into the fabric of culture? You know, it, and even I remember when I am, um, I only taught yoga in two places that were my own yoga shala. And those were in gyms. And it was really amazing because again, I got to work with people that otherwise I might not see. And it's important that yoga is part of the fabric of the collective. It's not just isolated into this purest sanctum, inner sanctuary, but that everyone can benefit because yoga is universal. Um, yoga means connection with everyone and everything. So I, I think that those challenges are good because they keep us otherwise, you know, we might just live in our high, holy, isolated space. And that would probably really be, um, you know, we'd all be missing out in some way. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, that exactly. <laughs> so we live in this virtual age and we have technology that has absolutely revolutionized how humans communicate. I mean, it's exactly 
what you're saying. It's like, I feel for myself, it's like I'm able to stay in touch with people all over the world. For example, this conversation that we're having right now, I'm in France, you're in Hawaii. And to me, it's no less potent. And I also know from personal experience that the transmission comes from being physically with another person and especially with my teachers in the flesh. What would you say to those of us who know the value of physical transmission and we live in this virtual age? Um, you know, there's benefits to both, but ultimately close contact is always so much deeper. Um, you know, we transmit in so many different ways. For instance, you know, when we're only looking at someone from the shoulders up, there's so much body language, there's so much transmission that can happen on other levels, the aspect of touch, of even sharing prana as far as breath. Um, and also, you know, this sense of like, okay, I can be on camera and I can be off camera. And, you know, it's, it's important that we recognize the humanity in one another. Um, and that's something that maybe we don't have in these cameo appearances in the same way. So I think it brings it more to a human level, more to, to an earth level when we come into a space together that's really powerful and potent but it doesn't have to be a deal killer um also in you know online there's <clears throat> there's kind of less of a dialogue that occurs it's more like there's a a download and a transmission so that can be an incomplete picture, but there's still much benefit there. And I have to say when the pandemic happened and you know, we were all scrambling because everybody was shut down. And when I, you know, we finally figured out how to get good internet service and after thousands of feet of trenching to create, you know, internet service at my yoga shawl and I was able to go online I was I was pretty surprised at how affecting the, the teachings could be. Now, a big part of it was the students were really peeled back and they really wanted it. Um, so it, it always just really depends on the caliber of the student. And, and I also saw, because I recognized about 15 years into my teaching, that where I needed to grow was in my capacity to really see the students, not just to teach, but to teach the student. And I was happy to see that like, I guess it was like 26 years into teaching. So maybe it took me nine years that I was able, and I really, you know, I took it on. It was like, I got a bigger screen so I could see the students that I was able to see through the screen into, um, into what would be beneficial for the student and to articulate it. And there was response on their end. So 
you know, it is, it is possible. It is possible. Yeah. But if you can be with your teacher, I mean, it's such a gift and it's a gift for the teacher too. It really is. I mean, we all come in with our family of origin and some of us are really blessed. Like you are, you have close relationship with your parents, you know, they're, they're um, mystics. Um, they didn't push you into the, into the mystic path. You were born a mystic and they allowed you to come to it on your own. For me, um, you know, I found my family, the people who I resonated more with by visiting my teacher and also making that long trip, that sense of pilgrimage. I mean, certainly, as you know, going to India, it's so potent. I mean, Mother India, and I, I just remember the first night being there, I couldn't sleep. And I woke up super early and I went into Shir Shasana and I could just feel the vibratory field that had been tilled for thousands of years. And the, the, the way that people move and the circular energy, um, the, the spherical consciousness as opposed to the linear thought that we grow up with in the, in the, um, you know, in the West. It was like I could see yantras and mandalas and it was super potent. So there is that aspect of like leaving the comfort of the known and of your own home and then being a guest and visiting somewhere else. And then you leave with something and you bring that back home to you. So I feel really lucky in that I was able to make seven trips to India and to, you know, I, I kind of created a, a satellite home there and it became my other home. It was really, really valuable. If, if people have the means to do that, it's always a good thing. It opens up life for us, you know, even just like going to another part of town and doing that. And I found it very interesting too, because um, you know, some people, they really struggle with like, oh, the class, it's too far away, or it's a wrong time, that's inconvenient. There's something really great about making that effort. That's almost a form of the courtship, you know, that we, we it's like, yeah, it, it, it took some time to get here. I had to leave my usual schedule and I'm stepping out of the monotony of my life. So yeah, close contact with the teacher is so wonderful because the, you know, it comes from a love and that's, that's maybe when we get out of the monetization again, it's like, Hey, I'm showing up here because I just wanted to see you. Um, it's beautiful. And that's something that I do when I go and travel as well. When I go and travel and teach, it's like, I, I get to experience that community and be welcomed into that community. And that's, that's the bridge that we're building through those efforts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I feel you. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it, there's this, there's just this way that, you know, being in person 
does something completely different. And for me, sometimes I wouldn't even, it was hard for me to compare them almost, but you know, it, it is, you know, we get this screen time, but we also get to be in person and um, sometimes they're not compare, comparable, but it also, it's, it's important to have any, any point of contact. So. I agree, you know, and something that just kind of sparked in my brain was um, the sense of being an exchange student. I mean, that used to be a real tradition. And when you think about it, it's, um, you know, you're part of an exchange, you know, so again, it deepens the relationship instead of an on and an off switch and a money transfer. Yeah. Yeah. So in my generation, maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know. You'll have to tell me, but my generation, myself included, we have this this way of um, talking about wanting to save the world. <laughs> and I've fallen into that. It's like, I just want to save the world. I just, you know, and sometimes it comes across as like, I just want to help other people, you know? And I'm, and I'm kind of, you know, leaning in, in a different direction. And I'm wondering if you can, speak a little bit about that is like what would you say to those of us who want to save the world because it might be impossible well fortunately it's not all up to you (laughs) and it's not all up to me otherwise we'd be in trouble (laughs) you know this is so beautiful because it's like we were just looking at this in this last sutra um and in the prior sutras, it was saying that the, the yogi realizes um, that there's a rhythm, there's a timing, there's a ripening. And as we become more seasoned in our understanding, like we all come in with everything that we need, but we don't know, <clears throat> we don't have the skills to use it. We don't have the nuances to use it. So we're ripening into that wisdom of seeing those assets and then also kind of getting out of the narcissism of what do I need in this moment? And it's like, then when we're paying attention in the spontaneous moment, it just becomes natural to respond in that moment. So even that sense of self-regulation, it's like, okay, well, how can I show up? We're not even asking that question. It's like the invitation is being presented to us all the time. So as much as we do feel a responsibility and we're part and partial of the greater responsibility, it's not all up to you. Then um, we can see even in times of challenge, that there's virtue that occurred, the, the virtue of the moment, that the challenge is what allows us to um, resource, to draw from our, to, to become resourceful. And then the, 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 the one who is like awake realizes that they're sourcing from source. 
So now we're sharing from our own good graces in the virtue of the moment. And in that last sutra, 150, Tajajapas Tadartha Bhavanam, um, that's not what it is. Tajajapas Tadartha Bhavanam. Yes, it is. Um, no, that's not it. That's not the sutra. Excuse me. Um, Tajajapas is the one. But what happens, hang on a second. Let me pull from the files here. Is that we, when, oh, here it is. Here it is. That we, we become a treasure finder is what Patanjali says. And we realize the treasure that was already there. And I think that's what, you know, it's like we, we're, we're discovering that we're in this together. So it's when we can see the virtue of the moment, yeah, we're being challenged, but this is an opportunity to become resourceful. <clears throat> and I'm sourcing from source. So I'm becoming a conduit of, of my own, of virtue through my own good graces, then we help others to discover the treasures that they already have within themselves. So then we come into this, again, that sense of, of community and family and reciprocity. Um, it's almost like, remember back in the day when people would have a barn raising? And perhaps if we did that more, it's like, okay, how can I show up and help? And I used to love doing that. It's like, I would um, love to go help someone clean their house. I had a friend and she had, they had just completed building their house and they were doing the construction cleanup. And I was like, can I help you with that? And so much of doing it was, I had so much joy in helping that. And wouldn't it be great if we all just showed up and cleaned each other's house? Like, we're going to do your house on this day. We're going to do my house on this day. Um, <clears throat> yeah. 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 I think so. And so, you know, in doing that, if we, if we can do our part, what is it that the, the Sufi mystics say? If we do our 1% fully, the powers that be are going to do their 99%. But I think people are so, um, you know, confused about the sense of boundary. And I, I believe we've touched on this before because we talk about things like boundless and infinite. And then we have questions around generosity and am I giving too much? Um, and then maybe there's the expectation, like if I'm giving, what do I get in return? There has to be an unraveling of that dynamic and a settling into the feeling of our own fullness and the trust that, you know, again, sometimes we have to ask for help, that if we could just open our mouths and speak, you know, and say, how can I help? Or could you help me in this way? That that's an important part of intimacy, is is being able to extend that question. And people, I know I feel joy when I'm able to offer something. 
but sometimes it may feel invasive if if somebody doesn't ask for it. So it's really an unwinding of our, you know, maybe this harkens back to that sense of the social media thing and the isolation. You know, I had a friend who I was talking to and I hadn't heard from in a while and she said, well, I feel I, I feel so connected to you through social media. And it was interesting because it was like there was a little bit of a like a bump in the road there where I felt like, yeah, but I didn't know that you were feeling connected to me. And sometimes just picking up the horn and and giving a call can do that. Um we need we need the communication. We need that sense of, of of transmission and working together. I see a see it a lot in yoga studios in the communities where they're they're so they're struggling so much and so they're trying to find their niche instead of having more of a collective experience. It was so great when I taught in Jackson Hole. Um, you know, I was like, oh, do you have any chairs? And they're like, oh my God, chairs, you know, where are we going to get 30 chairs? And three different yoga studios provided their chairs. And fortunately, they'd all been my students. So it was so wonderful, like this coming together, let's make it work together for this joint experience. And that might be something that we do more and more is have you know, these, these events or celebrations in which we come together unified and realize, yeah, I'm taking care of this neighborhood and whatnot, but let's work together. Let's work together. Yeah. So it is individual. I mean, all we can do is our part, but it's not entirely dependent on you. And realizing that there is a greater rhythm and a timing that's happening. What we can do is support that natural impulse of helping and community and service. We can do our part. And then also um, save ourselves from this martyrship complex. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like bigger than us. Yeah. It reminds me of what Dr. M. Scott Peck talks about in his book, The Different Drum. He talks about soft individualism versus rugged individualism. And what brings to mind is is like, you know, not not assuming that social media is is the connection, but it's a it's a supplement, right? It can be in addition to all of the ways that we do stay in touch, but not assuming that um, because I feel a certain way on my end that the other person is having the same experience like in life also. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, and you know, oh gosh, one of the most beautiful things in yesterday's sutra was it was saying that the more subtle the imprint, the stronger it is. So this is where, you know, um, you know, even though Patanjali's path is a path of radical nonconformity, it happens on a really subtle level. 
And so we shouldn't underestimate the power of planting a garden or composting a vegetable or reusing a container. Like these little things actually make a big difference. Um, and, and so we're, we're, you know, we just want the quick fix and the radicals, you know, we want the switch, like, just show me what to do, spell it out for me. But I, it, it is that sense of the, I love that soft individualism, that it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of internal strength to be soft and subtle in hard times. And we're really working with the the timbre or the quality of the of of the collective um so you know i wonder what would happen if we were to, to shift even our awareness com- from coming from a place of lack so you know some say this is at the root of why there's invasions and there's warring because somebody has a resource that somebody else wants and there isn't sharing or there's a sense of greed. And if we were to realize that like nobody owns any of the resources, but that they're being, that they're being shared from divine providence or natural resources or whatnot, there's a sense of movement and fluidity in that. Yeah. These are deep questions. These are big questions. (laughs) (laughs) So I found the sutra 150 is Taja Samskara Nya Samskara Pratibanti. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'll put a link to that. But um, so Talk to me more about yoga as a path of involution. Yeah, so involution, I I had to look up the the word, of course, and it's considered to be the counterpoint of evolution. So evolution is the capacity for an organism to be able to um, metabolize and assimilate more and more complex information in more diverse ways. And yoga says, you know, yoga turns everything up on its head. And so, so many people are overwhelmed and they're trying to do so much, right? And they get kind of stuck in the extremes. And they might find that they become a little bit one-dimensional in like, I'm doing too much or I'm not doing enough or feeling overwhelmed or feeling underwhelmed. And when we understand that we're really dynamic and that there's, we're complex beings capable of so many subtle, nuanced ways of responding rather than reacting in the extremes. So it's it's kind of hearkening back to what we were speaking about earlier, which is involution is this sense of rolling. When I looked it up, it means to roll the margins inwards. And it comes from um, volere, 
which means to be deeply involved. So we start to become really deeply interested and it's like, okay, well, I'm having this impulse. I'm having this urge. I'm in this action. Where does that arise from? And then we can look at the kleshas, right? And the kleshas are the frictious energies. They're not something to be avoided. They're this sense of, of getting to the heart of our being. They knock off the rough edges. They um, show us where we're going against the grain. And, um, you know, that thick veil, some even say that Abhinivesha, which is the resistance to change, the fear of death, fear of the unknown, clinging to life as we know it, is actually the first impulse. Some say that, some say avidya. And, you know, really it's a chain reaction anyway. And so avidya means really not piercing through. And that's the forgetfulness of our oneness. So that's like, if, you know, what we're seeing in culture so much, and particularly on this island where we've had 16 billionaires move here, to Kauai, yeah, between my house and the end of the road. I mean, it's astounding is that there's less and less, and this is happening everywhere, there's less and less of a middle class and there's more and more of a lower class. And until we lift that, so what's happening here is nobody can afford the rents, nobody can work for the base pay and make a living. So there's very few people to serve these extremely affluent families. So they need, and these extremely affluent families apparently need 30 people to make the day happen just to get their teeth brushed and what needs to go on. So how does that work? There's, there isn't really much horizontal growth. It's becoming really top heavy. So, you know, as we, we roll the margins inward. If we're, avidya is this sense of isolation and it's, it's the disconnection from the unifying force, which is love. And that, you know, the other, a, a few weeks ago, I got to go camping in Kala, which was just so amazing. And we were sleeping on the beach. There were like five of us women and the ocean was to our right and the waterfall was to our left. And all night was just this sound of water, water pouring out of the earth and water churning in the ocean. And I thought, my God, like this waterfall is just exploding with abundance even when i'm not here this is what's happening all the time where like this endless resource that's being regenerated and moving through all of the the layers of of the environment and the atmosphere like there's so much abundance and it's said that love, and I'm not talking about the, the load we put on love as far as the human experience of love, but in yoga, it's called bandhu. It's the unifying force. Love is what keeps that waterfall moving in its endless abundance and its endless offering. So avidya is the denial 
that there are infinite resources. And what what do we what what do we see humans do? You know, they're they're redirecting the water and they're hoarding the water and and the sense of hoarding and amassing um, because we're not trusting that there is a greater exchange that's happening. And that comes from that thick veil of Abhinivesha, which is where we're fear-based instead of love-based. And love is, for us, it's an action. For humans, it's an action. It's like, I, I don't want to just, um, we used to call it back in the, in the 70s, a drain bow. <laughs> <laughs> so you know and I was reflecting on this earlier like I used to do a lot of trade back in the day and I'm still happy to but the 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 challenge was that oftentimes a lot of people who showed up for trade didn't didn't um respect their reciprocation and because it was being given for free even though it was an energy exchange, I don't know, there was some kind of a disconnect in their brain. Like for me, when I do, did a trade, I was on it. I felt so grateful. And we just bypassed the exchange of actual, um, you know, commerce. It wasn't more of an energetic exchange. So, you know, love is our willingness to participate instead of being so um, stringent in holding and clinging on to what we have. So it's, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's, as it says in that sutra, we're developing new samskaras. And it's an involution. Like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this out of fear? Or am I doing this out of the joy of being part of, this exchange and like it feels so good to give a gift that's really important and and I was told by a friend who's um she has ancestry in the first nations that in her tribe you should never give something that you don't really want to keep for yourself it's not considered a worthy gift so when we when we do that it becomes an offering it becomes a love offering. So involution is to get, and, and fear isn't, fear is something that even the wise sages have. So it's, it's within us, but we, we get to do that, that alchemy and that discovery that underneath the fear is that sense of being unworthy and when we find our own worth, we come from a place of worthiness, it automatically cancels out the fear. That's what it says in that sutra. And we start to come into this place of spontaneity that's not so self-regulated. So that's the process of involution. It's like we, we discover we're able to source from source and because the subconscious is aligned with the conscious mind, fear is no longer blocking out this grand exchange. And we'll find that whatever we need 
there, there's, it's like magic. It just appears. The resources just appear. And it, 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 it takes time, you know, Patanjali says, this is, this is a strong realization and it takes a really long time to get there. So, you know, can we um, just see those tendencies within ourselves and realize that it's part of our own ripening process? And what I've really been tuning into, you know, in this process of involution, it's not so much about navigating the thoughts and the ideas and the belief systems and, and, and constructs that we create, but of really tapping into our internal state. So, yeah, it's not that we don't have insecurity. The kleshas, Baba Haridas, he says the kleshas are always present. And so, yeah, there's always going to be that vibration of fear. But are we going to make that our home? Or, you know, as, as John Kabat-Zinn says, it's like, am I afraid of fear? Do I have fear around fear? Can I make peace with fear? And what does that feel like in my body? And then when we do that, we, we can have peace around the fear and realize that fear is just <clears throat> one of the inspirations that is actually rooted in love that's causing, that, that is inspiring us to do something we might not do otherwise. So that's involution. It's like realizing that we're all, you know, our, our life isn't something that we hold on to. Our life is a gift. It's precious. It's fleeting. And then each moment becomes extraordinary. And we can feel the fullness of that moment and the nectar. Even if our stomach is grumbling, like, oh, this is what hunger feels like. And then when we take in the nourishment, it's just another form of that Ishwara Pranidhana of like, wow, I'm receiving alms. And this is something that I'm taking into my body and my gratitude is my, my return offering. Thank you for that really potent conversation and consideration. So, yeah, you know, if we can check into our internal state and um, make peace with what's going on, I wonder how that might change the collective experience. Can I be okay with my insecurity? Can I make peace with my insecurity, with my desire to cling, with my desire to individuate? Um, can I see that at the root of that is this, because it said the kleshas are what keep the wheel of life spinning. So we need those kleshas and we can make friends with them and very, very skillfully use them to um, 
become more strong in our subtlety. Brilliant and useful, very useful. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time. Until next time, ahui ho, and thank you so, so much. Namaskara. Namaskara. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to take these teachings on for yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. For more information about Bhavani Maki and her online and in-person teachings, including the Yoga Sutra Wisdom School, online Patanjali Yoga Sutra mentorship, and her continuing classes and trainings, please visit www.bhavanimaki.com. That's B-H-A-V-A-N-I-M-A-K-I. You will find many resources, including sound bites of the Patanjali Yoga Sutra Samadhi Pada and Sadhana Pada for free, as well as a free yoga class. Thank you again. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations from the heart. Please join us as we continue to walk this revelatory path into deep personal inquiry through yoga as a path toward our unique, true spiritual awakening. Jalaruha mitra jashatru netram kalusha